and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Trita Parsi, co-founder and executive vice president at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Trita, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me again. I asked you on to discuss the Biden administration's diplomacy with Iran, um, but there's some context worth reviewing first. So just to kind of set the table for what we're talking about, the Obama administration negotiated a very robust agreement multilaterally with Iran and other global powers to um, establish the JCPOA, which imposed limits on Iran's nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief. Uh, and then Trump came in, promised to withdraw from it, and then did so in 2018. Can you talk about what the consequences of that were? Uh, what what happened in uh, since the withdrawal and lead us up into uh, up until Biden? So you're quite right. You know, when Trump first came in, he didn't withdraw. He said he would withdraw, or that perhaps he would withdraw, created a lot of uncertainty. But he didn't pull the trigger until May 2018. And that was partly because at that time, several of the um, key secretaries of his cabinet had already left, um, uh, Tillerson and others. And it became easier for him having John Bolton on board, um, uh, Pompeo and others to push in this direction. The consequences were completely predictable. Yes, without a doubt, reimposing the sanctions and going much further than Obama ever had. And he did so not because he had a more clever sanction strategy. He managed to impose tougher sanctions because he was far less considerate of what the impact of those sanctions would be on other U.S. partners and allies. So, you know, he didn't try to build a consensus for sanctions. He just scared the daylights out of European and other countries. So they over-implemented the sanctions themselves. The sanctions then, the impact on the Iranian economy was, of course, devastating. Uh, about 10 million people were pushed into poverty. Middle class shrunk from 45 to 30 percent. Um, and uh, the GDP shrunk, uh, I think, altogether over two years um, um, uh, more than 15 or so percent. I mean, we're, we're not talking about stopping growth. We're talking about, a, you know, a contracting uh, economy. But the part that was highly predictable to many of us who had dealt with this issue a lot, but apparently came as a surprise, at least to Trump himself, perhaps not to some of his advisors who were pushing this strategy, is that the Iranians would obviously respond in kind. And their way of putting counter pressure on the U.S. is to uh, expand their nuclear program. And in the specific case here, when the U.S. under Trump was quite successful in dramatically reducing Iran's oil sales, it reached a point in which the Iranians responded by sabotaging and attacking ships in the UAE. Uh, they were most likely behind the attack on Saudi oil fields uh, that took the Saudis and the Emiratis and others by great surprise and um, sent shockwaves through the region. You know, the, the Iranians had long said that either the Persian Gulf is open for everyone or for no one. Uh, but it was always felt as uh, a rather suicidal doctrine because if the Iranians actually work to close the uh, Strait of Hormuz, that will have a devastating impact on their own economy. Well, in this case, the U.S. had essentially already closed it for them. And as a result, they had little incentive not to escalate. So they escalated their nuclear program, restarted, added more centrifuges, 
started building up a low uh, a stockpile of low enriched uranium, uh, while at the same time we saw a more aggressive posture uh, in the region. And you know, Pompeo himself had explicitly said that there's no way that the Iranians are going to restart the program just because we reimpose sanctions. I mean, it was so unbelievably um, uh, wrong that he could be. I personally think that he knew exactly what he was doing. He was hoping they would, and he wanted to push this to an escalation that would lead to a military confrontation. Certainly, John Bolton has been quite explicit about this. And at least on two occasions, the U.S. and Iran were just moments away from a military confrontation. Um, and as you, you know, many of the listeners remember, at one point, uh, the United States, uh, under Trump, ordered uh, uh, an attack on Iran. And last minute, Trump changed his mind and decided not to do it. But then you also had the assassination of uh, Soleimani that almost did lead to a military confrontation. If when the Iranians retaliated and struck the, the bases uh, where U.S. soldiers were, uh, based on people in the military I've spoken to, it was just pure luck that not a single American died. If a single American had died, we may have very well have ended up in a full-scale war. So pulling out of the deal, escalating sanctions, led to exactly what many of us has predicted, a growing Iranian program and a significant increase of war between the United States and Iran. What was Biden's agenda coming in on this? Um, many of the officials that had negotiated the JCPOA so arduously under Obama were um, now in power under Biden, it would seem to me that they would clearly just want to hurry up and, and get back into it and maybe even offer up some concessions. But that's not what happened, uh, is it? It's not at all what happened. It's, I think it took a lot of people by surprise, frankly. First of all, I think it's important to recognize that as a result of Trump pulling out of the deal, at a time when it was actually clear that the deal had worked, the Iranians had abided by the deal, the IEA had 14 reports, consecutive reports, testifying that the Iranians had, uh, certifying that the Iranians had uh, uh, lived up to their end of the bargain. In fact, the Trump State Department itself issued two reports to Congress, certifying that the Iranians had done so. Um, and then seeing the consequences of Trump pulling out led to a situation in which the JCPOA was more popular amongst Democrats, was seen more as a good policy amongst Democrats under Trump than it was under Obama. And it's not because it was you know, against it. It was more that at the time under Obama, there was still a bit of skepticism and it, there was an unknown. Will this end up working? Will the Iranians abide by it? What will happen in the region? After Trump, it was clear it had worked, and then we made it worse by pulling out. So it was clear it was a good policy. As a result, when the Democrats had their um, uh, primaries, almost all Democrats raised their hand when they're asked, would you go back into the JCPOA? Um, I think the only one who was a little bit hesitant was Cory Booker, but everyone else was in favor. It was even written into the Democratic Party platform, an unconditional and swift return back into the JCPOA. The political space had been created for Biden to swiftly go back in with almost no political cost and just get it over with. In fact, this is obviously what the Iranians expected because as much as they expanded their nuclear program, they never left the deal. 
They could have quit the deal themselves. And instead of continuing to have IEA inspections, just gone uh, all the way to uh, the brink of a bomb if they so wish for. Obviously, it would have been costly for him. But what else could Trump have done? He had already imposed all possible sanctions on them. They didn't. They stayed in because they hoped, they counted on, that the next president of the United States would come to his senses and bring America back into the deal. Essentially, departing from the assumption that it was Trump that was the aberration. Then comes Biden, and we see that first they adopt a very strong language in which they're kind of shifting the blame to the Iranians for why the JCPA was not working, saying that the Iranians have to take the first step, even though it was the United States that had pulled back. Then, perhaps most importantly, instead of just going back into the deal on day one or at least week one through an executive order, which would have been possible, as Biden did with the Paris Agreement, as he did with the WHO, as he did with repealing the Muslim ban, for instance, he instead decided that he's going to spend two and a half, three months consulting with the only three countries in the world that actually oppose the JCPOA. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Israel. And he was doing this at the same time that he was signaling the Iranians, you have to take the first step. And for there to be uh, an American return, the signal, the message that had been sent to the Iranians was that the Iranians would have to agree upfront that they would agree to a renegotiation of the JCPOA in order to make it longer and stronger. Now, I think we can say that from an American perspective, a longer and stronger deal is in many ways quite attractive. One can also perhaps say that one can't be blamed for trying. But I think we also have to put ourselves in the shoes of the other side and ask ourselves, how is this then being perceived on the other end? Here's a country, the United States, that pulls out of the agreement, crushes the Iranian economy, almost goes to war with it, and in order to come back in, we come with demands. We come with demands that, well, you have to do X, Y, and Z. So the Iranian reading of this appears to have been that they thought that Biden was going to renegotiate the deal by using Trump's sanctions as leverage, which then ends up making Biden's policy look very much like Trump's policy. Because Trump, too, said that he wanted to renegotiate the deal. He was just going to have much, much more sanctions leverage before he did so. So what do the Iranians do? They do exactly what they did under Trump. They further escalate their program. And some of the worst developments in the Iranian program, such as going up to 60% enrichment, occurred under Biden, not under Trump. It was partly a response to Israeli sabotage and assassinations. But it was also partly a response because if Biden is going to use sanctions as leverage for a future negotiation, what leverage does Iran have then? Well, then in the previous negotiation, their leverage was uh, low enriched uranium stockpile and centrifuges. Well, then they're going to go back and build their leverage for that negotiation, which they did was a disaster. And perhaps most importantly, by wasting three months, by the time the two sides came to the table on April 6th, 2021, the atmosphere was already 
poisoned. Mistrust was even greater than it was before. And perhaps most importantly, the Iranians were two months away from their presidential elections. The team that had negotiated the deal on the Iranian side was about to be ousted uh, and most likely replaced with hardliners on the Iranian side that if they weren't opposed to the JCPOA, at least were skeptics of the United States. And the administration knew this exactly. I mean, they themselves had publicly said that the window for returning is within the first three months. But instead, they spent that time trying to convince Bibi Netanyahu to go along with the JCPOA and not sabotage Biden's diplomacy. But the sabotage of Biden's diplomacy was not Bibi. It was Biden himself not engaging in diplomacy. So that's the what of uh, what the Biden administration did. But what about the why? Why do you think they took this approach? I was reading Axios recently and um, a, a, an unnamed Biden official said, I uh, sort of reiterated what has been their line for a long time, which is, quote, if there is a side that needs to take a decision, it's them. And it's been them for months. Why is the onus on Iran in the Biden administration's eyes? I think there's a couple of factors involved here. Some of them, in my view, are quite understandable. Uh, their consequences or the decision that comes out of them are not necessarily uh, uh, understandable, in my view. Biden comes in, and I think, frankly, he and his team, and I was in conversations with them, came in quite shocked once they realized the state of the country, once they actually had won the elections and were privy to all kinds of intelligence, etc., they were dealing with COVID, an economic mess, etc. And there was already a sentiment amongst many of his advisors that they cannot repeat what ended up happening under Obama, which is that Obama went for a nuclear deal, but it cost him dearly because it led to um, a frontal confrontation with the Israeli prime minister. Remember, when Biden comes in, it is Bibi Netanyahu that still is the prime minister of Israel. The same guy who had gone to Congress and addressed uh, Congress giving a speech against the American president, unprecedented. So I think there was a legitimate fear there that in his first year, when he needs to focus primarily on domestic issues, is it advisable to pursue a strategy that likely would lead to a confrontation with the Israeli prime minister and the damage that he can cause a democratic president? in Congress and elsewhere. That part of it, in my view, is correct and understandable. Where I think it's incorrect is the belief that you could talk Bibi Netanyahu out of doing it. There was no evidence whatsoever that had Obama just spent one more or two more meetings with him or whatever, Bibi would have acted differently. No evidence whatsoever. Bibi knew his interests. Bibi knew exactly what he was doing. And he pulled it off once Trump came in. And the idea that he would just cave to uh, a, a Democratic president uh, in his first year, it just uh, boggles the mind why anyone would think so. And if, don't take my word for it. See what Ben Rhodes himself said during the transition in his podcast, in which he pleaded with the transition team and the Biden team not to go down this path, saying, we've already tried this over and over again. It does not work. And, you know, um, that consideration, I think, was one of the most important ones. And it, there's a domestic political angle in it as well, which is, you know, 
this is important, but it's not as important as COVID. It's not as important as the economy. You just don't have the political capital to spend on this. Again, in my view, an understandable concern. The solution, however, in my view, makes it worse. Whatever political capital and cost Biden would have paid if he had done this during his political honeymoon is incomparably small compared to the political cost that he will pay today or last month or six months ago or six months from now if he does the exact same thing. The cost has just skyrocketed. In fact, part of the reason why there isn't a JCPA right now is because the cost is so high to Biden politically that he doesn't have the political will to pull the trigger on it. So understandable concerns, but non-legitimate or understandable responses to them, I think is what has led to this situation. So what you've described, essentially, the United States uh, bears responsibility for withdrawing from this deal, which the Iranians continued to comply with for a while after we withdrew. Um, the Biden administration has taken a kind of hardline approach, uh, demanding that the Iranians move first as if it was their fault that the deal has fallen apart. Um, he imposed additional sanctions, IRGC designation as a terrorist group. Um, we have our partners, the Israelis, uh, ratcheting up pressure with assassinations and, and, and sabotage. And essentially, the, the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy is still ongoing. But there have been negotiations throughout this process. Um, can you talk about some of the sticky issues that have actually been discussed among the officials? I'm thinking specifically of IRGC designation, but there, there are others. So um, let me also then take a step back and say, you know, another concern that existed in the White House was that during the period that Iran had expanded its program and reduced its obligations under the JCPOA in their, in the Iranian narrative, in the U.S. and European narrative, they violated aspects of the deal. They had, for instance, put together and installed more advanced centrifuges. What would happen to those if the U.S. just straight back went back into the deal? Essentially saying, and, and perhaps most importantly, the Iranians had added new knowledge. Can the U.S. just go back into the deal and then ask for Iran to uninstall some of those things? without having the sanctions leverage. So there was essentially a view that in order to get the Iranians to go back to where they were when the JCPA was struck, the U.S. couldn't just go straight back in. And again, I don't think that's an illegitimate concern. I think there is uh, an argument there to say, hold on, what if we just go back in and the Iranians pocket that concession and... Um, uh, and end up keeping that stuff. And then we're stuck in a situation uh, in which the Iranians are actually having more than what the JCPOA um, should have allowed them, but it's not measurable in a way. Uh, what do we do then? And again, totally understandable. But what I think, again, is the problem is an overestimation of what we can do through coercive measures and an overestimation of what our options are. Yes, perhaps going back in could have created some of those problems. But on the other hand, if the U.S. had just gone back in with an executive order, think of the leverage the U.S. would have gained. First, it would have regained the moral standing of being back in the deal. Second, as a JCPOA party, it would regain the ability to trigger 
snapback sanctions at the UN, something the US has lost because uh, Trump left the deal. And perhaps most importantly, given the fact that it was quite predictable that if we delayed, the Iranians would continue to expand their program, we have to make an assessment. What is our leverage at this point compared to our leverage six months from now, given that Iran will increase its leverage by continuing to expand the program? We would have had more leverage to do it right then than we do today, because now we're in a situation in which the Iranians have expanded their program so much that the breakout time, which was minimum one year, as long as the JCPA was in place, meaning if the Iranians made a decision to build a nuclear weapon, it would take them at least a year to have the ready material for a bomb, another two years to build a bomb, but at least a year to have the material for a bomb. That breakout time, as a result of Iranian expansion under Trump, but perhaps more significantly expansion under Biden, has now shrunk to eight to 10 days. So in terms of leverage, has the, the maximum pressure sanctions of Trump staying on for another year and a half, two years, given the US uh, the leverage that it needed? Or is the actual uh, tables turned in the sense that the Iranians are in a stronger position now than they were in January 2021? I think the answer is quite clear. Uh, and I think it was a miscalculation on the uh, Biden side, a miscalculation that is difficult to wrap your head around, mindful of the fact that several of the people in the White House were there when the JCPA was negotiated in the first place. Biden is planning a trip to the Middle East this month. What's on the agenda for that trip? Uh, what do you think he's trying to accomplish? He's going to Israel. He's going to Saudi Arabia, uh, despite promising to make Riyadh a pariah. Can you talk a little bit about the regional posture that the administration has taken vis-a-vis -vis Iran? What I think we see here is a pattern, not just that Biden promised to break with Trump on Iran and go back into the deal, not just that he promised to break with Trump by making pariah out of Saudi Arabia and ending the war in Yemen. We're seeing a wholesale shift by Biden towards continuing Trump's legacy. This trip is very much primarily motivated, according to Biden himself, when he said, I'm going there because the Israelis believe it's important for me to go to Saudi Arabia. Well, why do the Israelis believe it's important for him to go to Saudi Arabia? Because the Israelis want the expansion of the Abrahams Accord to include Saudi Arabia. That's the prize. UAE is good to have, but the prize is to get the Saudis to normalize relations with Israel. The Abrahams Accord is the arrangement that the Trump administration managed to get through in which a couple of Arab countries gave a major concession to Israel, normalizing relations with Israel in return for America giving concessions to those countries. So in the case of the UAE, the United States gave the concession of selling F-35s. In the case of Morocco, the U.S. shifted its position on Morocco's occupation of West Sahara. In the case of Sudan, 
uh, it was necessary for the Sudanese to normalize relations with Israel in order to be taken off the U.S.'s uh, countries, uh, sponsor, uh, state sponsors of terrorism, which has nothing to do with whether you recognize Israel or not. So we give concessions to the Arabs in order for the Arabs to give a concession to Israel. The U.S. gets nothing out of this. And it was presented as a peace deal, but it, if you read it, it's really not even aspiring to be a peace deal, at least not a peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The formulation is quite clear. Uh, the Abrams Accord was about moving beyond the Israeli-Palestinian issue, meaning not trying to solve it, but rather sweep it under the rug and then uh, strong-arm these Arab countries who long had had a position to say, we'll recognize Israel if Israel recognizes a Palestinian state, to drop that through the Palestinians under the brass and recognize Israel in return for American concessions to those countries. Now, Saudi Arabia was not willing to go along with this because the king, Salman, heavily opposed it. MBS, the head-chopping uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, is apparently quite in favor of it, but he's not king yet. But the Israelis want to expand the program um, bring Saudi Arabia into it and turn it into a military alliance between some Arab states and Israel against Iran. It's actually very clear that this is the original intent of it. The Israelis have made it clear that it's the perceived threat from Iran that is motivating these countries to come to Israel's side. I don't think that is the case. I think they do see a threat from Iran. I think that this is a way for some of the Arab states to bind the United States to the region. This is a way to continue America's involvement and military commitment to the Middle East instead of the United States leaving the region. The document that was leaked from Jared Kushner's shop on the Abrams Accord makes this very clear. First of all, it says that the Abrams Accord would never have come about without US support, and it will not be able to survive without continued American support and engagement in the region. It also makes it clear, and this is very important, that for the accord to survive and endure, there cannot be a reduction of tensions between Iran and some of the Arab states. Because the glue that holds it together is that the Arabs perceive a threat from Iran. If you actually resolve Saudi-Iranian tensions, which would be fantastic. It could bring an end to the war in Yemen, could bring an end to conflicts in, in, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, not necessarily all of the military. But if you resolve that, the whole premise of the Abrams Accord crashes and the military alliance cannot um, uh, be established. So what's, in my view, so problematic with this is that instead of going for the JCPOA, which would have opened up the pathway for more diplomacy in the region, an effort to actually resolve some of these tensions. Biden seems to have given up on that and instead is focusing on expanding the Abrams Accord, bringing Saudi Arabia into it, and then essentially building an Israeli GCC military alliance, some have called it an Arab NATO, which will cement conflict in the region will almost ensure that there will be a confrontation at some point. In fact, I think it's quite fascinating 
when Biden, when Trump himself was doing this, um, the then he was obviously not an official at the time, but he has always been a very close advisor to Biden. Anthony Blinken wrote an op-ed in New York Times in June two, 2017. And he said, an anti-Shia coalition masquerading as a Middle Eastern security alliance will only fuel those sectarian fires and produce more, not less terrorism. Instead of taking sides in that conflict, Washington should press Riyadh and Tehran to stop feeding it. I mean, Tony almost sounds like a restrainer uh, in that op-ed. But uh, an anti-Shia coalition masquerading as a Middle Eastern security alliance, well, that's exactly what the Abrams Accord is. He was correct in calling it out. So the question is, why is Biden deciding to build on Trump's foreign policy and legacy in the Middle East instead of Obama's? So the Biden administration is kind of at war with itself over its own set of policies. If they're engaging in all these hardline policies and they continue to put Iran in this box and essentially carry over Trump administration policy towards Iran, why even go through the charade of um, having negotiations? Why uh, do they feel they want to secure the reestablishment of the JCPOA if they're uh, having this hardline approach, incentivizing Iran not to cooperate. And of course, the other issue is that the Iranians and the Biden administration agree on one thing, which is that nobody can guarantee that America will stay in any deal that the Biden administration reaches because a Republican administration, if they were to succeed Biden, um, may withdraw the way Trump did. So it seems like this JCPOA is hanging by a thread. Um, and what's even what's the value of for for from the Biden administration's perspective of continuing to negotiate under such dire conditions for a deal that may not even last uh, more than 2 years after uh, it's agreed i think there's a couple of factors here first i think it's important to recognize exactly what you said there's some significant divisions within the Biden administration i think there are people there i think rob malley for instance is absolutely committed to revising uh, the JCPOA. I'm not 100% convinced that he is extremely fond of the strategy that um, the Biden administration chose and that he's been picked to implement. Um, I, I would suspect that he would have gone with something else, frankly. Uh, so I think there's some clear divisions. But I think it's also important not to conclude from what I have said that this was a plan all along, that there never was a real intention to go in. It was just a charade. The entire objective from the outset was to uh, go into the Abrams Accord. I think this is an administration uh, that is extremely tactical uh, and uh, has not given this enough um, uh, thought through. It doesn't have a cohesive policy on this issue, on, on the Middle East as a whole. Uh, and has gone back and forth. I mean, just take a look at the Afghanistan withdrawal. It was going back and forth, back and forth until the last minute when Biden just made his decision and, and tried to force the, the rest of the administration to go along with it. Uh, take a look at what happened with Austin's review. Uh, early on, the, the intent, as we were understanding based on our conversations, was that Austin's force posture review would conclude and recommend 
that a very large number of military bases in the Middle East should be closed. That what Biden had said that this is an end of forever wars was actually the beginning of that process with Afghanistan decision, not the end of it. And there would be more uh, withdrawals from the Middle East. A couple of months later, all of that shifted. And it shifted, as we understand it, because the argument was made that Trump's NSC was right, that there would be a confrontation with China, great power competition, and that that great power competition would not play out primarily in the South China Sea. It would play out in the Middle East, in Africa, in Latin America, in Europe. And as a result, the United States, its closest, its, its best instrument in that presumed inevitable great power competition is its alliance system. And as a result, it needs to sustain and strengthen that, which means instead of withdrawing and creating this, you know, uh, concept of vacuums, uh, it should actually double down on these alliances, which essentially means being even more deferential to Middle Eastern Arab dictators who constantly undermine U.S. interests because we need them against China. They went on that, and as a result, the production, the, the end result of that force posture was a complete nothing burger. It was nothing there. It was no change whatsoever. Yeah, it's very strange because there seems to be at the very least an emerging policy consensus, at least among experts, that the United States has overinvested strategically and otherwise in the Middle East. Um, and I've heard you uh, describe the JCPOA, the value of it, not necessarily in the terms that some Obama and Biden administration officials might say that we have a kind of global responsibility to... Um, work for non-proliferation of nuclear weapons and so on. But rather, uh, I think you recently said, the point, the real value of the JCPOA was that it would be an opening bid for a continuation of diplomacy in which they could start addressing other issues. It was a starting point for a different US-Iran relationship. I, I would go beyond that. It, it, that is the immediate, but in some ways, in my view, the smaller opening. It absolutely would do that. And, and both the U.S. and Iran said, I, I think Zarif said on several occasions, the JCPA will be the floor, not the ceiling. And also from the Obama administration side, there was definitely an openness to expand uh, diplomacy and start addressing other issues. For instance, um, for two, no, for several years, the U.S. as part of the containment policy of Iran had made sure that Iran could not participate in the discussions about Syria, in the diplomacy about the civil war in Syria. As soon as the JCPOA was concluded, the U.S. did a 180 and was insisting that Iran had to be included. It could not be a solution without Iran. Uh, and instead was spending its time pressuring the Saudis to say, don't you dare call in sick. You have to show up, even though the Iranians are there. So it was an opening for that. But more than so, I would say, it was an opening for the United States to start being able to leave the region. Because if the U.S. and Iran start uh, resolving their tensions, if we have more regional diplomacy, the, fun, the, the, the strongest justification, at least in that context, this is before a great power competition with China, the, the strongest uh, argument for keeping U.S. troops in the region, which was an Iranian threat, would have been neutralized. It would essentially be an exit ticket for the U.S. to bring U.S. servicemen and women home from the Middle East, which is what the overwhelming majority of American uh, Americans want. 
What is the threat from Iran? Do they pose a threat to U.S. security beyond our own preferences resulting from our entanglements with uh, Iran's regional rivals? Do they pose a direct threat to us? Is, there a, is no. it more about our overall posture in the, in the region? I, I don't see any credible threat the Iranians could pose to the American homeland. Can they pose a threat to U.S. bases in the Middle East? Absolutely. That begs the question, what are those bases there for? Um, you know, we can have bases in places um, that are legitimate and valid, but if we don't have a valid reason for it, and then those bases are under threat from another country, uh, the, the clever and logical thing is, well, let's not have bases that actually put our soldiers in the line of fire unnecessarily because there's no justification for them being there. In our view, America's interest in the Middle East is to make sure that there is no hostile hegemon that can take over the region. There's no need for the U.S. itself to have hegemony in the region. The only potential threat is if a hostile hegemon emerges because of the natural resources uh, of the region. But there is no candidate that actually could establish hegemony in the Middle East. We had a military analysis produced by Eugene Goals, who's done a lot of work on this, and his conclusion was that, you know, there's no regional power that actually has the military capacity to establish hegemony. And when it comes to extra regional powers, I mean, we now see clearly the Russians um, can't take Ukraine. So the idea that they could take the Middle East is a little bit um, far-fetched. And in the case of the Chinese, we've seen no indication whatsoever that A, they would have the capacity or the interest in doing so. So we don't see a need. We, we believe that the interest as we have defined them do not actually necessitate any military basis in the region, at least a permanent basis, but it can be handled um, from offshore uh, uh, capacities that we do have. Um, but we're there for a variety of reasons, and, and the overarching one is that we're over-defining uh, our interests. Our interests are defined in a too expansive way, and the one that I think is the most expansive is like the catch-all uh, variable there, which is, and we have to do it to defend our allies. Right there, our interest is not defined by us, it's defined by countries that are actually not even treaty allies. That means everything is our interest suddenly. Under those circumstances, we should not be surprised that we have 750 military bases around the world. We should also not be surprised that it's not serving our interests because it's almost not designed to. Trita Parsi, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me.